Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week I'm joined by Craig Lee. Craig joins me to talk about his experience of having an eating disorder, body dysmorphia and suicidal ideation for International Men's Day. It was a real privilege to be able to speak to Craig and speak so openly with him about his experience. I really hope that anybody listening finds comfort in this and know that you're not alone. Thank you so much for um, joining, like coming on today. And we, I was like, I really want to chat to you. I was like, we're gonna find a date. We are absolutely gonna find a date. We did. We neared it. Took some doing, but we got there. <laughs> we did. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and this is gonna sound really weird, but um, I just need to say it. When I first watched your video on uh, Instagram, I was like, I really wanted to chat to you because I'm just, I'm in love with your accent. <laughs> like whereabouts wish, are you from i'm from county durham and i wish tiktok shared your love for my accent because when i'm doing the captions it it really just doesn't oh. have a clue i'm having to go through and edit everything oh god oh my wow yeah oh <laughs> dear that's, I'm like, that's so annoying <laughs> yeah. it, you know, I've, I've, yeah. I've gotten I, the hang of it now i've accepted it it's yeah yeah, that must take forever, though, to go through everything. Um, Thankfully, it, it doesn't take anyway, too yeah. long. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I was a big fan oh, of your thank accent. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we'll get started. Um, so, obviously, this... Well, it's this month, I think, but it's today, isn't it, that it's, it's Men's... International Men's, men's Day. Yep. International Men's Day? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually going to edit this afterwards and then put it out this evening um, so that we, we get it on the day. Um, but I think this year, um, in particular for um, International Men's Day, there's, they're talking about, um, you know, suicide and is it, I think it's like zero suicide rate or something that they've, they've named it or something. Um, and so I'd really love today to talk to you about your own personal experience of an eating disorder and body dysmorphia and how kind of suicidal ideation plays into that. So to get us started, do you want to kind of just give the listeners a bit of an intro about yourself and and then we can start talking about your your experience? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, So I'm Craig. I'm a qualified counsellor and psychotherapist specialising in eating disorders Um, And it's only very recently that I've chosen to specialise in eating disorders after my own recovery. Uh, But I've been working in uh, health behaviour change services and mental health services, mainly charities with the latter, um, for about 18 years. Uh, Qualified as a counsellor in 2012 and then have just launched my private practice this year. Exciting. That's yeah. Very exciting. And what, so you said there that you have recently just been doing the eating disorder thing and you said that that was because of your own experience. So mm. do you want to tell us a bit more about what your experience was of 
I always hate asking that because it's like, oh, you know, give me it in a few sentences. <laughs> and it's like, that was my life. And it was horrific. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it will be difficult to sum up in a few sentences just because it was so complex. And like mm -hmm. many people with an eating disorder, it changed over time. Um, so I, I've had an eating disorder the majority of my adult life developed probably when I was around 19, 20, and I've been in recovery now for the past year. Um, and we, we can certainly go on and, and look at, you know, some of the things that may have led to me developing the eating disorder and the, the what we'd call predisposing factors, because there were plenty. Um, but, you know, if we were to, to put categories and labels, um, certainly bulimia, uh, orthorexia, atypical anorexia, has been the, the sort of pattern um, through my life. Yeah. 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 And, and when you were just saying there about kind of like the predisposing factors, mm. what kind of was it for you that you felt led to the development of the eating disorder? Um, yeah. I mean, we know this with eating disorders that it's, it's multifactorial, you know, that there's not, mm. um, there's not a single cause that you can, identify but there are certain predisposing factors that that can um very much account for for people developing eating disorder and so with myself i can see a number of things it was um there were several childhood traumas um bullying uh, body image issues which led to development of body dysmorphia in my teens and particularly with men you know, the entry point for eating disorders seems to be um, getting involved in trying to be fitter and exercise. Mm -hmm. And there was very much that, you know, in my teens, I started going to the gym and lifting weights and trying to get bigger um, and more muscular. Mm -hmm. And that was um, that was certainly the the beginning of the path. And then... Mm -hmm. uh, it's really difficult. It's a chicken and egg situation sometimes you see with this because I, I developed depression, you know, in my late teens, but was the depression a result of, you know, the, the mm. sort of body dysmorphia as it certainly can be, or did the, you know, did the depression come from um, poor nutrition uh, or was it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the sort of low mood that, made me more likely to to develop poor eating behaviors you can't you can't always define an exact cause no. with these things and and the good news is you don't have to and one of the reasons yeah. i really wanted to do this this podcast was to talk a bit about my experience and how complex it was so that people can see it's it's not necessarily a straightforward for example this trauma happened developed an eating disorder got this diagnosis mm -hmm. And this was how recovery went and there we go it's yeah very rarely that simple yeah absolutely and and that's why I always feel so bad saying to people like oh can you just kind of you know give me a bit of information about your experience because one thing I find is you know once somebody's been in recovery they seem to have this kind of they can talk about it and they can explain, you know, because they've done so much processing of it. They can be like, this thing happened and then I developed an eating disorder and then I went through recovery and now I'm here. And it seems so 
linear but then when you're in the midst of an eating disorder it feels like an absolute minefield and you just can't even grasp what's going on so for somebody then to be like oh yeah like it it happened then this happened then this happened I personally would always think like oh well I'm never going to recover because I haven't got my story figured out like that um so definitely to think about like the fact that you know and also I really liked what you said about you can think about the factors that may be predisposed you but one you're never going to know anyway because it could have been the absolute smallest thing in the world and that was the thing that kind of hit it off um and two it doesn't really matter I think that a lot of people now are talking about in um treatment you know rather than going back to your past and trying to to heal your past in order to heal the eating disorder it's about thinking about what you can do in the present so that you can move forward regardless of you know what's happened to you in the past you can move forward and have coping mechanisms in place that mean you don't need the eating disorder no i'd certainly agree with that um although the there is very much a place especially at the beginning of uh eating disorder therapy uh my training was through the national center for eating disorders and mm-hmm. our approach at the beginning of therapy is to do what's called a lifeline so to actually go through a person's life from um, from childhood up to the present and help to identify what some of those predisposing factors might have been. And I do think that's important because, again, going back to my experience, it helped me have a lot more compassion for myself. And, you know, this certainly doesn't just happen with men, but I think there is a particular stigma with men around sort of gender roles and masculinity so you know for most of my life I had that experience of um feeling that because I had an eating disorder it meant I was weak um and Mm. any other kind of negative terms you want to add to that have have probably been through my head but Mm. having that understanding and being able to see all of this on the lifeline I remember saying to my therapist of course I developed an eating disorder it made complete sense. And I think mm-hmm. until you can have that understanding, it can be difficult to move forward because I needed to I needed to know that I deserved to recover and that this wasn't mm. just a personality flaw. It wasn't just mm. me being weak. Yeah, and absolutely. So, yeah, certainly I, I don't think, you know, as a as a therapist, I don't think the answer comes from just focusing exclusively on the past. It has its place, but actually, mm-hmm. and you'll see this in a, a lot of my videos, I, I talk about you know meaning and purpose because recovery is so much more about, um, it's so much more than symptom alleviation. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you've got to focus on what's in your life now and what what is going to be your meaning for, for recovery and achieving the things you haven't been able to achieve because eating disorders you know steal your um they steal your joy they they prevent you from living life fully quite frankly yeah absolutely yeah i think that's the thing isn't it a lot of the time people are focused on kind of the symptoms or the behaviors and and that's obviously a part of it and then they play into how you live your life but ultimately the eating disorder takes your life from you and I Mm. think that's that's recovery isn't it is getting that back um I wanted to kind of 
um, there were so many things that you just said, I've had to write them down to, to make sure that I don't forget anything. Um, but you mentioned about um, kind of, you know, when you were younger, you got into the gym and that's quite mm-hmm. common in people that, um, that in men that have eating disorders. And to be honest with you, it's a bit of a kind of gripe of mine in that, you know, we've we've had the experience of anorexia is like a female eating disorder. Um, and now we're really pushing for this rhetoric of like, if a man has an eating disorder, it's muscle dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that, you know, there's more um, research coming out about muscle dysmorphia and it's getting the airtime. But I'm just like, you know, not every man that has an eating disorder is is going to be muscle dysmorphia. You know, all presentations of eating disorders can show up. Um, and I think, yeah, I think before, if we're not careful, it is going to go from, you know, I think we had this rhetoric of gay men get anorexia before. I think that possibly still exists. Um and then men get muscle dysmorphia, but we're not really thinking about the other eating disorders or, you know, just the fact that men can get an eating disorder in just the same way as a woman can. It's not kind of, you know, based on anything else. Absolutely. Um, and it's, <laughs> I think you're right. It, it, we've got to be careful in that focus on okay, yes, we know a lot of the, the messaging out there is focused on on females because predominantly um, it's females who tend to present with eating disorders. But if, if we are then just focusing on males who have muscle dysmorphia, which is a type of body dysmorphic disorder, which, you know, in itself is more, more of an obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, than anything and doesn't always go hand in hand with an eating disorder but if we then just narrow our focus down to those men we're missing a wide range of of men who will be suffering with um, binge eating in particular that's one of the things that seems to present mostly when it comes to eating disorders in men it is binge eating uh, though i suspect over the next few years we're going to see a lot more around the orthorexic side with um Mm. oh you know you can't go on on social media these days without someone telling you they're doing intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it is uh and you know even even with myself beyond the the gym I had an injury when I was 19 or 20 and I ended up uh stopping lifting weights in my late 20s because I developed a cervical spondylosis type of arthritis and, okay. you know, I was quite a committed Buddhist in the Theravada tradition, mm. where actually the ideal is sort of um, almost under-eating. And I, I certainly mm-hmm. don't want to paint this out as a as a, a feature of Buddhism. I, I very much brought my eating disorder to Buddhism and used it as an excuse mm. But until before I met my wife, I was planning on ordaining as a Buddhist monk and very much had that restrictive mentality around it. And so I used Buddhism as my excuse to restrict and saw being as thin as possible as a as a goal, as something to to be almost 
proud of. And there was certainly no one in the Buddhist community at all encouraging this or, or cheering it on. Um, it was sort of that part of me that knew what I was doing but wasn't ready to admit it. So it's, yeah. you know, there's all these complexities there that, that don't fit into the, as you say, the narratives that we seem to be seeing around meals with eating disorders. Mm. Yeah. And I think that is, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's quite common in that whether, you know, it's a religious practice or, you know, maybe it's being vegetarian or something like that. When it's like a, an accepted thing of, you mm. know, as a, a Buddhist monk, you you want to kind of you know stay thin and things like that. That's such an easy way for an eating disorder to kind of latch onto that and be like, well, you know, it's fine because it's what everybody else is doing. But it's, I guess, it's not the actual practice that is the issue. It's the way that your brain works and how that aligned with the practice. And then it's kind of, it's kind of like using the practice in order to let the eating disorder thrive um which i guess is so difficult to then kind of navigate as to you know this is the practice that i am engaging in and i want to but equally like it's having a negative impact on my eating disorder so where on earth do i go here yeah and there is that um that tunnel vision you get with an eating disorder where i was conveniently Mm. ignoring the fact that you know the the practices I were I was engaging in. Um, there were rules and allowances within Buddhism that meant I didn't have to follow those practices if it was causing me any harm. But you know that mm-hmm. aesthetic um, mindset that often comes with eating disorders wanted the um, wanted the restriction. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's when you know that you're not engaging with things properly is you know when it's sacrificing your health and then you're being told you know you don't have to do this this if it's having a negative impact on you and you're still doing it it's like well maybe there's some other things we need to look into here definitely and you know at the time I didn't even think I I had an eating disorder you know I'd as far Mm. as I was concerned I'd recovered from bulimia in my 20s and I was trying to follow this restrictive, um, this restrictive diet, which I kept failing and binging, which is often the case with any kind of restriction. But for me, it was it wasn't it wasn't that I was doing something wrong in trying to achieve that. There was a sense of well, you know, of course I'm gonna look after my my health. Everybody else is wrong for for eating junk and and you know eating too much um i thought i was just being weak and failing to follow what was a sensible and logical thing to do for health improvement and longevity Mm. and that's that's the big thing there that an eating disorder deceives and it blinds you completely to the reality of things Mm -hmm. yes yeah absolutely and and i think blinds you to the reality of the behaviors the impact it's having on you it's the impact it's having on everybody around you I think like you used a really good phrase there that tunnel vision I think when you have an eating disorder that's exactly what happens um and I want to come back to something in a second that you just said but um 
just going back to something you said before uh was you were saying about how um like women with eating disorders present more frequently than men with eating disorders Mm. but actually we're learning that men um you know have quite uh, it's quite common for binge eating and things like that and I just wanted to ask your thoughts around because I know with autism we're now realizing that actually it's not that autism is more common in boys it's that autism presents itself in a very different way in girls and women and therefore the sort of support that people need is completely different do you think that's potentially what's happening with eating disorders is that actually they're probably just as common in men but maybe the way that they're presenting isn't the way that we're used to so we don't we don't spot it as often I certainly think there are elements of that with um I'm gonna have to use the the sort of gym and exercise example here but you know if you take for example um someone who is trying to uh bulk up and put on a lot of muscle you know they can be consuming vast amounts of calories in what for for people who aren't trying to do that would be considered a binge but it can be a socially acceptable binge because it's bulking Mm. um and then you've got the over exercise element which you know is is very much a a form of purging if you are over exercising but if it's someone who's outwardly just committed to their health, you know, going to the gym is is a lifestyle choice and it's a it's a hobby, and it's hard for people. It's admirable. To... Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so these things that can look like normal, admirable behaviours, you can't see what the the uh, the underlying motivations are there or what's going on behind closed doors that that person is not willing to admit to themselves because I can certainly look back mm. at my own behaviors, even, you know, beyond the, the gym days um, where I was deceiving myself over what I was doing. So I, I do think there is mm. that, that element about it maybe presenting a bit differently, but I, I do think the biggest factor and a lot of the research supports this is you know, men less willing to um, to come forward and, and talk about struggles, mm. and we know that's the case with mental health in general. But with eating disorders, I think there's a there's an added stigma there on top of all an already existing stigma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was actually the other thing that I wanted to come on to was because um, I completely agree. I think that the fundamental issue that we have is we haven't created a space where men feel that they can come forward and they can talk about difficulties that they're having with their body or with food and things like that um and one of my friends um she's an assistant psychologist and she put something on her instagram the other day that really got me thinking of like the way that we are trying to get men to talk about their mental health is the way that we do it with women and women we know are naturally you know more open and more likely to share struggles that they're having you you just have to think about if, if I use my life for an example when I go out and go with my friends you know we'll catch up we'll talk about what's been going on in our lives we'll you know discuss anything that we want some advice on difficulties that we're having you know we might talk a little bit about like 
pop culture or whatever but predominantly the conversation tends to be focused around like what's going on in our own lives whereas my partner when he goes out with his friends it's very much like surface level chat it's you know what what's going on in sport or what's going on in politics and things like that and he will often come back from being with so we we basically like have two um there's a couple and I'm best friends with um the the guy in the relationship and he's best friends with the guy in the relationship and we'll come back and I'll be like oh yeah like they're doing this and they're doing that and he won't have any idea because all they've spoken about is like things that are outside of their own lives which I think is you know that's great to have a mix of of those conversations but that really just identifies to me that like women naturally talk about what's going on in their lives and, and talk to their friends about it whereas men don't so I think it's the the approach that we need to or the environment we need to create needs to change drastically in order for men because it's not just like they're talking about their mental health it's they're they're talking about you know something personal to them which isn't kind of the most natural thing I don't think for men to do yeah yeah I, I totally agree and it's there was some research that sort of looked at um what the the barriers are for men talking about mental health mm. and the predominant things that came back were were men either feeling like oh I just need to deal with it which is you know that, that mm-hmm. idea of um being the breadwinner being dominant having control of everything or and at least being outwardly seen to be in control um but also what came up was the the idea of not wanting to be a burden not wanting to impose mm. yourself on a on another person and i think we are moving steadily in the right direction with mm. um with challenging these societal and and cultural norms and you know you you've got um you've got more celebrities coming out and talking about mental health uh and even eating disorders and and that's great i think we need more people with those those kind of platforms to do that and and we're seeing things crop up like um it's called andy's man club and you know things that are encouraging men to talk but we also do have to acknowledge that yeah you know that that sort of um i don't want to get that down the route of of sort of looking at so-called toxic masculinity because yes there is certainly that element but there are men that are just hyper masculine who are maybe not toxic in any way but that is culturally normal for them not to open up about their feelings and i i grew up on the east coast of county durham and talking about your feelings was not something you did as a man and i was i was seen as probably less masculine because i'm quite naturally unfortunately an oversharer and you know it's changing that culture is not something that's going to happen quickly and it can't be forced and so i think Mm. if we're wanting men to open up more we can't force it we have to Mm. we do have to to i'm going to use a matrix reference here we do have to show them the door (laughs) but they have to walk through it we absolutely can't push them through it yeah Mm. yeah I think that's that's such a good point there. And I think, you know, as much as we are trying as a society to create a society where, you know, men and women are equal and obviously like I have I'm very much for that, I think we can't we can't ignore 
like the historical element of the role that men had and the role that women had. And I think, you know, you said it a couple of times in that, um, I don't know whether you're referring to your eating disorder or mental health in general, but for you to have struggles with that meant that you were weak. And I think that a lot of men, even if they're, you know, even if they um, are, you know, see themselves as equal to women and stuff like that, I think it's it's often, and, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a man, um, but a lot of the time it's sort of the comparison to other men um, rather than it being like, oh, I don't want to be as weak as a woman by sharing my problems. It's almost like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be weaker than my other male counterpart. Um, and I think it's, it's, like you said there with the toxic masculinity, I think that's a really interesting kind of point in that I completely agree and that I don't think that you know just being masculine necessarily means that you're you know you have toxic masculinity um but I think that then it makes it even more difficult for somebody that you know maybe is more masculine to speak about their issues I think it's amazing when they when they do you know I watched the Tyson Fury documentary recently and I thought it was absolutely amazing like the world's like um, is he like a heavyweight boxer? I should know that from like the world's undefeated heavyweight boxer is talking about his mental health, his depression, his bipolar, and then his dad's there, who's a proper like <laughs> northern geezer, yeah. and he's on his jog for his daily mental health. And I'm like, that is absolutely amazing. Like, we yeah. need more people that are, you know, maybe the stereotypical man to share about their mental health and to show that it's totally okay and nobody thinks anything badly mm -hmm. of you to share that because I think there's something to be said about putting yourself in a vulnerable position where you do share about your mental health. But the more that people do it, the more people will realise, oh, like, you know, they're talking about that. So yeah. I think I can do that as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd certainly like to see more um, boxers and MMA fighters and, and people like that mm. talking about mental health and particularly eating disorders, because um, I suspect it's a lot more prevalent than people realise um, mm. within those uh, those kind of circles. But you know, we we do we need to see that variety of, of representation of men, and you, you do. Get that. I mean, you've seen oh, what's his name? I was going to say Norman Osborne, but that's the Green Goblin in Spider Man because I'm a giant geek. Richard, oh, Richard, Richard Osmond. Osmond. Yeah, um, Richard Osmond, uh, Christopher <laughs> Eccleston, so Doctor Who. You know, we need to. Yeah. We need to normalise that. Eating disorders don't discriminate. You know, it doesn't matter what gender, sexuality, mm. um, hobbies, work you have. Anybody can develop an eating disorder. And mm. um, and the more we get that message out there, the more we normalise it, the more we can open up that door, which you're never going to force anybody through, but then you know the door's there in the first place. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I really like what you said there as well in terms of, like, anyone can get an eating disorder because I think often – that the phrase men get eating disorders too is used and for me that like men get eating disorders too is like making it that it's 
different for a man to get an eating disorder because it's like oh you know men get them too like you know we know it's a woman's problem but like men get them too whereas when you just say anybody can get an eating disorder it's it's not kind of like highlighting the fact that for a man to have an eating disorder is like a novel concept in our minds no and that's a really good point and i am absolutely guilty of using men get eating disorders too on my social media platforms just because it is something that seems to get the message out there like people engage mm. with that a lot more than they engage with um anybody can get an eating disorder because it's so mm. so targeted but you're absolutely right that that is in in a way a part of or at least a symptom of the the problem uh and and that's why there is no it's hard isn't it it's let's carry on Go sorry ahead. no no you I was just going to say, it's really hard to strike that balance because you want, you don't just want to say anyone can get an eating disorder because then it doesn't feel supportive to anyone because you're just yeah. saying, well, anyone can get it. But at the same time, you know, that's that's sort of not the intention behind it. It's saying, you know, eating disorders don't discriminate. They can affect anybody. And you don't want to just kind of, you know, it'd be like saying, I don't know, older women can get eating disorders too. And it's like, oh, well, were we questioning whether older women could get an eating disorder? Like, does it look different for them? That sort of thing. Um, so it's really difficult to strike that balance. It is. And I think that's why there's not going to be a single solution or quick mm. societal change around this because it's it's multi-layered and it's complex. Um, and things like this do take time and i i think the i think you know things are certainly shifting in the right direction i remember when i first went to see my gp when i was 22 23 i'd probably had an eating disorder a good 3 years at that point but hadn't realized that's what it was um and i just remember the skepticism on his face when i was telling him and it was i can i can remember the look you know, and it was this kind of, and the way he was asking the questions wasn't in any kind of normal information gathering way. It had that air of, are you sure you're you're doing this and doing this and doing this? Mm. And I'd like to think, uh, I wouldn't just like to think, I've certainly seen um, over the past 15 years, the way eating disorders are talked about in men change but we still got a long way to go we really do yeah it's i think it's an interesting one i think for people like us who work in the world of eating disorders it's you know it's as obvious as anything that a man can have an eating disorder but i still have conversations now you know whether it's with family members or people that are asking about the podcast and stuff like that I say, can men get eating disorders? I'm like, why do you think that they can't? Like, let's think about that first. Like, you know, you're asking me that question. Why do you think that it is only a female issue instead of kind of, you know, men being able to have it as well? Because at the end of the day, we're every reason that you think of for an eating disorder, you know, like you said at the start, it's multifactorial. Like, none of them are gender specific. Like, mm -hmm. everybody's subject to body ideals. Everybody's subject to diet culture. Everybody's subject, you know, potentially to trauma or to anything. Like, none of those things are based on your gender. So, why would the development of an eating disorder? Yeah. And then I think if you also look at what 
most people seem to think of an eating disorder, they think young, underweight females when we, we know that actually mm-hmm. most people with an eating disorder aren't underweight. So it's mm-hmm. we're we're competing with this um this kind of ingrained image of what an, an eating disorder looks like. So let alone, you know, let alone focusing on on men, we've still got a lot of work to do just to help re- people realise that even eating disorders in females doesn't mean being underweight um, and that you can have anorexia without being underweight, for example. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, man, there's a whole host of work that... But we, we, you know, we're slowly chipping away at. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your personal experience, mm. um, because obviously this this year um, for Men's Health Week, we are talking about suicide and opening up those conversations. And I wanted to understand a bit more about you, because you said about, you know, you had body dysmorphia and, and an eating disorder. And I wondered if that interplayed with um the suicidal ideation and I think for me this is something really important to talk about because I also have body dysmorphia um and I think when when you say oh body dysmorphia people are just like oh you struggle with your body image a bit and yes if you're going to put it in very little words I struggle with my body image but I don't think that often people realize the extent that it can go and definitely for me you know I have I've thought you know I would be better off dead because my body is so horrific or the kind of obsessions and the checking certain body parts became so tiresome and overwhelming that it just felt you know in my mind easier to not be here anymore than to have to engage in those behaviors and I I think because people often trivialize body image um body dysmorphia is is very misunderstood so I just wanted to yeah kind of hear from you what your experience had been with body dysmorphia and the suicidal ideation yeah I mean everything you've just said there definitely resonates because I remember being 20, 21, sat at my desk at work thinking I'd rather be dead than continue to, to live with a, a body like this. Um, and, you know, it was, every day was, was just a battle to not let those preoccupations overwhelm me. And there were a couple of times I, I, I did come close to, to making a suicide attempt. Um, thank you to my cat for stopping one of those those attempts. <laughs> um, wow. I know. How did, can I ask how your cat, can I ask how that happened, I, how, you, how your cat stopped you? Yeah, I was I was just sitting at home um, on my couch thinking, right, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to go and do it. I had a plan. And she just comes trotting down the stairs, meowing at me for food. And I was like, absolutely not. I can't, I can't just leave her, you know, and it's, that, that was the thing that I did it. And I, I went and got help and it did take many years after that before I, I overcame body dysmorphia. I actually overcame body dysmorphia as part of my eating disorder recovery. Um, but that was the beginning of me really reaching out for help. Um, 
because I, I knew I'd, you know, come too close that time. It wasn't the first time, but it was the closest I'd come. And, you know, it's, again, this is one of the narratives we, we need to, to change around suicidal ideation because you still hear things such as, um, well, that person was selfish to kill themselves or selfish to even think about killing themselves and leaving their family, et cetera, et cetera. When you were in that mindset, it's not a rational mindset. You are absolutely convinced that that would be the best thing to do, that the pain you were in is so overwhelming that you you believe that that would be the best for everyone. And it's not true. It is. It absolutely is. Um, uh, an irrational state of mind, but you can't you can't judge someone for for being so overwhelmed by those thoughts and feelings until you have felt them yourself. And I hope you know. I hope no one ever ever does who's listening to this. But it's it's not as simple as oh, what's the phrase? taking the easy way out and i hate that phrase because it absolutely really isn't yeah so it we need to change that narrative i think yeah you've knocked the nail on the head there i think when you're in that mindset it feels like you're such a bird i mean this from my personal experience you feel such a burden on everybody around you and i think for me as well like the eating disorder an eating disorder you know it gets it get finds its way into everything whether it's that's your relationships um your family life your work life everything and so because it causes such a nuisance for everybody around you it's like well i can't let go of this eating disorder and therefore the only way out is for the eating disorder and me to no longer be here um but like you said that's that's never the case and the people that you know love you dearly you know are always going to be there to support you mm-hmm. it's just that it can it can you know if we're being honest it can be difficult to support mm-hmm. someone with an eating disorder um but I think you're right in terms of the the narrative needs to completely change because I don't think you know coming to that decision deciding to do that is ever a decision that somebody just kind of flippantly makes and it's an easy decision to make I think it's entwined with months and months of chronic depression and just not knowing you know you get so lost in it all that it doesn't feel like there's any other way out um Mm. but I think because of that rhetoric of it's you know um a suicide attempt would be the easy way out or you know it's it's sort of like the weaker option I think that also ties into the whole aspect of men not speaking openly about their Mm. mental health or about struggling with suicidal ideation because it because they hear you know oh that person um pardon me that person kind of um took the easy route it's then like well if I'm struggling with that then but then I suppose is it sorry I'm kind of as I'm talking I'm thinking about it like if you from my perspective if you then you know if we're going to say that you take you know it's the easy route then talking about it is actually the more difficult route and therefore as a you know if we're thinking about stereotypical man the more admirable route and and that's 
I think you've hit the nail on the head there that when you actually start to investigate these narratives, um, they're mm. not they're not straightforward at all. You know, it, it's yeah they're they're so wrapped up in different values and ideals that they they almost cancel each other out. And you know, mm. this is something in in therapy that that works very well. Um, you know, when you start to uh, when you start to really investigate the the beliefs that someone holds and the messages and their values, uh, you can you can help them realize how many faulty and distorted and contradicting beliefs we have because we're constantly being bombarded by differing values and, and ideals. And you know, it's no it's no wonder we're all sort of stressed and why depression and anxiety is so rife because we're our brains haven't evolved to, to cope with um a modern world that has so many different ideas and values that it's feeding us. And so I think this is where mm-hmm. therapy plays such yeah. a good place in being able to help people unpick that. Because once you've identified your values and once you've got that meaning and purpose, it's much easier to to then build on that and develop the the skills to withstand a lot of the things that perpetuate and make eating disorders certainly worse. Mm, yeah and I imagine as well once you've got your values in place if you then do have internalized biases against you know speaking openly about your mental health or whatever Mm. you can then kind of backtrack them and question them against your value of like okay so that thing that I've internalized is actually aligned with my value of you know whatever I'm whatever is important to me or is it actually quite counteractive and counterintuitive yeah, and and that can be quite transformational when you start to investigate mm. those things. And I mean, eating disorder recovery is transformational anyway. It's um, oh, I'm going to show what a really big geek I am here. I always compare it to Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. You know, in order to <laughs> in order to defeat his demon, the Balrog, he mm. has to essentially be reborn. He has to sacrifice a part of himself, mm-hmm. but he comes back better. He is still Gandalf, but he is a different version of Gandalf, wiser, more powerful. And that is absolutely what happens in eating disorder recovery. And I could never have imagined myself recovering. I remember never being able to imagine what recovery would look like because I'd been enmeshed in the eating disorder for so long. And so for anyone listening to this who is in the same boat, I would want to say that, you know, you can't imagine that from where you are because you will change as you go through recovery. Mm. You know, the, the eating disorder has so much control over the way you think and perceive the world. When that voice calms down and when that's no longer such a significant part of you, your whole world changes. I never thought I'd be able to um, have my own private practice. That was so far away from me. Uh, but I will say this, when I was 25, I went to see a counsellor and God bless her, she obviously didn't have any experience with eating disorders because one of the first things she said to me was, you know, you're going to have to accept you could be battling with this your whole life. And I remember in that moment thinking, if I'm still battling with this in five years, I'd rather be dead. And I, I never 
I walked out of that room and, and never went back. And I was still battling with this for many years after that, not just five years. And I was so wrong to think that there there wouldn't still be a life to be lived beyond that. You know, I, I yeah. couldn't have imagined being able to do what I'm doing now, having this conversation without my inner critic telling me I'm going to sound like a knob or anything like that. You know, it's, it's, you don't realize the, the sort of inner resources you've got until you begin to go through that process. And it's, it's just an amazing discovery and I'm still learning new things about myself. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is that it's never going to be over. Like, I think people always say that, oh, can you be fully recovered um, from an eating disorder? And I'm like, well, I think it all depends on what you think fully recovered means. Because for me, you know, I hope that I get to a point where I feel that I am, you know, recovered and able to live a life free from an eating disorder. But in terms of, and I think they're probably separate things, like in terms of personal growth and sort of like the things that you learn along the way you're constantly going to be learning and you know you might get 10 years down the line and have not had anything to sort of thought and then all of a sudden be somewhere and have anything to sort of thought and it's I think it's those moments then that one you realize how far you've come mm-hmm. but also then you you know you use those coping mechanisms that you've worked so hard in in therapy or you know the ones that you've really got in a robust position now and it means that you don't then relapse and that to me is what recovery means is is not leaning into the eating disorder behaviors when things get difficult or challenging um and for me personally you know I have had an eating disorder since I was 14 and it's been ebbs and flows and unfortunately I've had like my biggest relapse over the past year but I wouldn't say that I'm, I mean, obviously I would have preferred to not have it, but I was very much living this like partially recovered life, but there was still a lot of things tied up into my life with my eating disorder, but I just accepted that they were normal. And then because of this relapse, because we've had to kind of unpick everything, it's now like, no, we're not leaving any stones unturned and we're going to do it all so that this doesn't happen in the future. But like I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't have had the relapse. So I think, you know, you're constantly going through and learning things. And I really hope that in, you know, years to come, will there'll be this will have all been a journey for us in terms of, you know, learning how to support men in talking about their mental health and to feel that they, you know, are in an environment that they can do that. And we'll probably look back and think, well, God, why didn't we do it like that before? But I think we've very quickly moved into sort of an area. And again, it's completely the right thing, but like where, you know, men and women's opinions are completely equal. And if you think about 10, 20 years ago, that didn't exist. So things move very quickly and maybe something as sensitive as talking about your mental health it can't move as quickly because people need to make those gradual adjustments to feel like they can i completely agree and i think this is where in for all of the flaws of things like social media um that that there is there is a place for it to be a force for good um and certainly with the mm-hmm the um sort of advent of podcasts now um like and subscribe to the full of beans podcast but you know <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, 
but genuinely that it's this kind of thing that is contributing to to that shift that we need to see you deciding to have a man on your podcast to talk about his experience those are the the little steps we need to take to break down those stigmas you know we can certainly hope that be um governmental interventions and policies that are going to help but it's also it's that individual level you know just having these honest conversations and normalizing these experiences yeah absolutely because i think that's the thing isn't it it needs to change on like a societal level and people like all need to realize you know no matter what their background or whatever that it you know they can speak about their mental health and that's okay and i think sometimes if we just focus on focus on like the government or like the treatment area it means that the people within that kind of discipline know it but we don't know it on like a you know societal level and i i think maybe the people that aren't involved day to day in mental health are the ones that we really need to kind of get in contact with because you know somebody like that works in mental health is probably gonna realize you know yeah I could talk about my mental health and um like you know mental health affects everybody but I would say you know somebody that doesn't and their job is very distant from that they may not be able to have those conversations because it's not something that comes Mm. naturally to them or they've not kind of had the awareness that it is okay to talk about things like that that's right yeah and i think that is why there's a place for and a lot of companies are doing this you know you sort of corporate focus on um on various Mm. mental health topics and and aligning themselves with various campaigns Uh, i think that is part of how we how we do this how we open up the conversation um and you know most big companies especially have uh, employee assistance programs um and I think really focusing on those programs in line with various campaigns um, is, again, part of the little steps we need to see so that it's becoming ingrained at every level of society. You know, it's a, it's not just a top-down approach. It is it is a bottom-up. And, you know, I mentioned I'm an, I'm an oversharer and... Uh, you know, I've caught myself so many times in the past resisting posting something on social media, um, just like my private social media about my own experiences, or you know, in 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 a workplace. But I thought I would rather normalise this for someone else and deal with the, the inner criticism I, I would have for thinking, "Oh, why does say that?" Then then this remains something that's taboo and stigmatised or at least just not um, not acknowledged because, yeah. you know, the, the reality is um, people are suffering miserably from eating disorders. People are dying, people are killing themselves and we're a long way away from getting to the point where that is a... You know, that's a, 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 we're a long way away from seeing that as something which is a rare occurrence. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, um, like what you said there about, like, 
putting your experience out there and worrying that you're oversharing that has been something that I have battled with like the whole time of doing full of beans because I I am also an oversharer like I wear my heart on my sleeve you know exactly how I'm feeling but that's just the person that I am and I, I don't want to change that because I think there's I have like come to the fact of like I'm proud of the vulnerable person that I can be and I'm proud I think that's brave to put yourself out there and I know that not everyone can do that but that's totally okay but I think so many times I've had people say to me like you know I heard you share your story and it made me realize that it was like okay for for me to be struggling as well or not okay for me to be struggling but like you know my my struggles were okay to share and I didn't need to be ashamed of it and things like that and I I think like you said that's where social media comes in in such a good way in terms of men just sharing their experiences of mental health struggles or you know whatever's going on for them to to you know you hope that I really hope from this podcast if one man listens to this podcast and then goes away and you know speaks to his partner or something and says you know I've been struggling a bit with this I'm not really sure what's going on but I just want to share it with you then that would absolutely like that's exactly what we're aiming for in terms of we just want people to know that it is okay to talk and I think you know I'm really grateful that you've come on the podcast today with me to share your experience because I really think that people will listen and they'll think you know Craig shared his story and 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 no one judged him so nobody's gonna nobody's gonna judge me either um I just wanted to end on I mean we've given you've given loads of absolutely fantastic advice but if you had to kind of put it into like a TLDR for for the listeners what would you what would you say if somebody is struggling what would be your first port of advice to somebody my first port of advice I think certainly open up to someone you trust I think that is the the first the first step open up to someone you trust who you can at least just say, look, I'm having these struggles. Um, I don't know what it means. I don't know what to do about it. But I think that's that's got to be the first step. And that's often the hardest step. You know, it's, it's once you acknowledge that you're struggling, um, not just to yourself, but to someone else, uh, yeah. you've, you've taken taken the most difficult step. And that can be what then propels you forward so support Mm. networks are so important so identify that trusted person in your life and have that conversation yeah definitely I think um oh what was I just gonna say yeah sorry um I think like saying the words out loud that you can kind of have the thought in your head and maybe acknowledge yourself with something but saying it out loud Mm. can feel so daunting But whilst, you know, if it's that level of daunting, imagine the level of freedom you're going to get from saying that out loud and somebody else knowing. It's like a massive weight off your shoulders. You're not carrying it alone anymore. Um, So I think that's really great advice. And I think as well, something I always like to say is we always talk about like support networks and stuff being family or friends or whatever. 
there is like no person that's off limits in terms of who you want to speak to in order to get support if it's the person that you trust and want to share that information with like you know it could be the bin man for all you know if you if you've got a good relationship with your bin man or your postman or whatever um then it's yeah I think it's just finding somebody that can be that support to you um, that you feel comfortable because I think sometimes you know there might be people in your family that people would recommend that you go and speak to but you might not feel comfortable yes um, but I think that is yeah I would agree that that's definitely the first thing to do is to to speak to somebody and I always like to think of it as you know at the moment it's you versus the eating disorder but when you tell somebody about what's going on, you bring somebody else on to your side and then, you know, two versus one, you know, you know who's going to win. Um, and also, I just wanted to say as well, it really made me laugh about your Lord of the Rings reference because um, I am going, did it, was it Lord of the Rings? It was Lord of the Rings. It was, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I've never watched it. Um, but... <laughs> My was a very similar thing when I was um, going through my eating for the first time. I created this like world in my head where I was Harry Potter and the eating disorder was Voldemort. And they say on that, don't they? Like, neither can live whilst the other survives, um, yeah. which is very true because you can't survive. Well, you can survive, but you're not living when you've got an eating disorder. So, you know. Old Voldy needs to get in the bin. I'm I'm <laughs> gonna have to develop some metaphors around that, like how we do an expelliarmus to disarm the eating disorder first yes. before we oh, avada kedavra. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> when they talk about um, when they talk about perfectionism and anorexia, uh, I was pretty pretty uh, on it with this. I literally had a book and it, I had listed in it like every single character and which character they were in my life which spell meant which thing, which did detract from recovering from the eating disorder. So if you do do that, I would recommend that you just, you know, go lightly with the references rather than, <laughs> um, you know, focusing on developing this Harry Potter world and not your recovery. So <laughs> Good that advice. would be my advice. <laughs> um, but Craig, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and all the advice that you brought. Where can people go to find out more about you and to get in touch? Um, and thank you. Uh, you're doing amazing work and I really appreciate you giving me the time to, to come on and speak today. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Craigley Therapy or my website www.craigleytherapy.co.uk. Amazing. Brilliant. And I'll put them in the show notes as well so people have got access to them. But thank you so much. Thank um, you. Have an amazing time in Glasgow. Um, although I feel like it'd be very cold up there, but you're I, you're basically there, aren't you? Really in Durham? Well, a couple of hours, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't criticise your geography, there. but <laughs> <laughs> you're a lot closer than I am. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. It's been oh, really lovely to chat to yeah. you, um, and I'll let you. you go enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Oh, thanks you too, Han. Take care of yourself. Oh. Okay. Thanks, Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe.
Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.